It's the Christmas edition. I'm Zach. He's Al the Killer Miller, and this is The Gray Zone. Welcome back, y'all. So I've got big news for you, Zach. Two yep. things, two announcements. Number one, I promise that I will not bring up decision-making on this podcast. I don't believe you. Okay. And number two, I spent um, at least four hours a few nights ago going through all my social media accounts and deleting all of the nasty comments I've said about coaching content online. Okay, but what about the nasty comments you said about me? Oh, no, those those will live forever on Instagram <laughs> servers. So <laughs> just, what I'd, just what I'd expect. Before we start, I don't know if you were going to do this, but we should plug. It was supposed to be a joint show, but our man Boggy D kind of took over. And that's totally fair because he's he, he he it wouldn't have happened without him. Uh, mm -hmm. But we appeared on on uh, Bogdan Gregorenko's show, No Strings Attached. Um, and uh, hopefully by the time this episode is out, then we've uploaded our audio to the gray zone but if you haven't had a listen go check it out either at uh, no strings attached or the gray zone it was a it was a fun chat yeah i've been calling his podcast between the lines for a very long time <laughs> <laughs> unintentionally uh, i'm assuming that. yeah yeah that's what i should have called called ours though that's not bad that will you know gray zone gray zone works though especially because i told you know i bring up decision making every two minutes um yep pretty much so i got some questions for you mm-hmm um, we're at the time of year at the club where we're sort of assessing sort of how things have gone over the last little bit, um, specifically like planning. What did we like that we did? What do we have to re like address going forward? Although we're getting into a bit more of a competitive phase for our athletes, but it, it led me to sort of the question when, when you're considering session planning for your program or, or your athletes, when you plan things, are you like, how specific are you in your planning or how general are you in your planning? I'm really interested in that question. Um, it's a shame I didn't ask it to you. Then now this, I have to do the thinking. It's a topic that I'm actually going to be writing about in a little bit for a project. But um, it's interesting because if you look at like um, John Wooden, for example, and I, uh, of course, there's plenty of good coaches out there, but I fall back on Wooden a lot just because he's a uh, inspirational figure in, in in certain ways. And he was meticulous with his planning. He planned every single practice down to the minute and he was pretty rigid about sticking to it as well. And then he would like file his practice plans and then he could like go back and look at like last year on this day, what did we do? And then two years ago on this day, what did we do? And he would make subtle modifications and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And he was really, really rigid. Um, and on the flip side, pretty much every good coach I've worked with or observed working um, doesn't plan on paper. I'm talking high performance. They yep. they have a plan in their head, maybe a few notes, but it's 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 really in their head or it's sort of spur of the moment, see what's going on. The third sort of piece of data, if you want to chuck this all in, is that I have found quite often in the past that the more I plan my sessions or the more thought I, I put into planning my sessions, the better they are. And which maybe sounds obvious, maybe maybe it doesn't. But it's clear that, you know, coaching, just like playing tennis, coaching is an open skill, right? You're observing and, and making decisions. It's ridiculous to suggest. I hope I hope people it's not too controversial a statement. It's ridiculous to suggest that you can just sit there and go, OK, uh, you know, at, at 613, we're doing this. And then at 626, we're doing this. It's you certainly could. But I'd argue it's not very learner centered because part of our job is to do stuff and then and then observe what happens and respond to 
how the athlete is performing and what feedback they're giving us. And some things are going to take longer. Some things are going to take less time. Sometimes you're going to have to progress things. You're going to have to regress things. Um, so you have to be adaptable, but at the same time, I think to put time into planning out, okay, what exactly do I want to focus on and what's the best use of my time, given what I already know about their, their fatigue status and competition status and this and that. And then also to plan like, you know, what could happen? Okay. If they're struggling, I'm going to do this. If they're doing it really well, I'm going to progress it this way. That's interesting. If, if this, if this doesn't work, I'm going to try this instead. I think investing time into that kind of planning as well, like contingencies and different routes so that then you're more prepared to make those decisions in the moment when you're coaching. I think that's a pretty valuable use of your time. I'm going to be the first to admit I don't do it enough. Um, it does take, it does take a lot of time and I'm not, uh, I'm not perfect in case anyone had any doubts, but, um, so I, I'd say I usually, I usually have, um, a good idea in my head of where we're at and what we're, what we're trying to achieve. Uh, mm -hmm. but there's a lot that goes on in the moment when I assess what's going on and, and make decisions based on that. Yeah. Interesting. The, the concept you brought up of like almost planning, like a flow chart in a sense of like, if this, then this. Mm -hmm. is interesting because most of the planning that we've done for for our academy or our program um it makes a ton of sense on paper and then the first day when we go implement it we realize that oh we, we have to change x y and z because of i guess things that we observe yeah um which is always kind of the fun part about it um in a sense but if i were to ask you more specific about your planning stuff like would you say you're 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 planning for um a group of athletes say, say it's four athletes over over a six month period uh, or three month period, like take your pick. Um, I guess how general of would your plan be and how, and or how specific would it be on certain skills? So for instance, and I'll give you an example now with our under 14 group um, for the, for our fall program, the coaches decided to do um, one plan that covered a few things that they were going to implement over the span of three months. Um, the difference with our ITF group, the one that Bronco and I um, are overseeing is, we chose to do sort of five to six week blocks that really focused on certain skills. And then in the next theme, we'd sort of maintain those skills and build on to a new skill. And like uh, the improvement's been very, like pretty good in both programs. So I don't think this is a type of thing where one is right or one is wrong. But because I respect your opinion, I'd be, I'd be curious on how you go about that. Yeah. Um, it's tough. I'd say I generally generally plan in shorter blocks but i'm also dealing with and i maybe this is the case for you as well i, I apologize i don't know but we talked on we talked on the other show about the difficulty in getting competitive opportunities for kids in, in toronto but like i'm generally dealing with athletes who are competing you know max you know dealing with maximum maximum three weeks in between comp in between competitions and that's not to say that you have to you have to peak for every single tournament. That's not what I'm saying, and that you can't work on stuff. But just to say that we're dealing in terms of like getting dedicated days in a row to train stuff. Like we're looking at usually two weeks in between tournaments, um, sometimes three. So I'd say I'm generally planning in that kind of a window, those kinds of blocks. And it's like let's do this work for two, three weeks, yeah, and then we go into competition. And we might, like I said, we might still work on stuff in competition, and we're and we're either refining it or we're doing something else, of course. Yeah. But you then sort of evaluate and then that gives you feedback on, okay, this stuff is ready. This stuff isn't ready. And we go from there. I think like, I, I mean, I used, used to talk about this back in Canada and, I, and there's, 
Oh, there's a great story I love to tell, but I, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna share people's names on the uh, in public. But, but it's like I, I think it's ridiculous to to like do a full annual plan, you mm. know, to make a, a, a. I apologize. I know there's there's some value in it, and there's place there's people in places that ask for it, and I understand why. But like, you just can't look that far ahead. And I think it's I think it's a little bit like telling someone who's playing a match to go like um okay so when you start the match you should do this and then when you're up three two you should do this and then after you've won the first set you should do this in the second set and then when you're serving for the match at five four in the second then you should do this it's like you don't know how the match is going to evolve and it's the same thing with an athlete or a group of athletes you don't know how the year is going to evolve and so i think it's very difficult to to predict or to plan further than a few weeks in advance and of course you can say okay this is the stuff that we're going to do Mm-hmm. But is it necessarily what's most relevant for them? Um, that I'm not sure. And now I'm rambling, but I apologize. But it, I think it's also different. The context you're in, I'm ver- I, I've said this a million times. I'm very fortunate, at least I think it's a fortunate, to be working with a, in, in, within a small academy where essentially always two to a court, maybe three to a court, um, responsible for a handful of athletes. And so I can be very individual in my planning. But if you're managing 12 athletes, and you maybe and maybe you're four to a court and four to a coach, but the group as a whole is training together twelve athletes. Then you've got to be much more general. If you're if you're sitting there working on okay, we're we're working on uh, on approaching and and block volley, and one kid's not getting it. It's like well, we can't really change the whole t- training just for yep. this just for this one kid. So then then you then you can sort of plan a little bit more into the future because you're not going to be as responsive anyway. But I'd say generally in a very long-winded way that I'd plan max three weeks in advance. Yeah, interesting. I have I have thoughts in my head of like, okay, after that, I'd like to tackle these things. For sure. Um, but it just you don't know how it's going to evolve. Some yeah. problems, some problems sort themselves out, and other things, you, you know, you you think they're a problem, and then you watch in competition, and it's like ah, actually, it's not what's causing them to lose. And then other things you think are good enough, and then you watch them play, and you go like, oh, actually, that's not good enough. They're losing because of that. So then I've got to reevaluate my priorities. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I think I think it's an interesting point you bring up too about some of the planning stuff. Maybe not always being appropriate to large groups. And if I think of like some of our programs now, um, we've got some players in the program who are UTR eights, UTR eights, eights and a half, and there's. Sometimes we have players in the program that are like twelves, um, when they're when they're in town and everything else, and so it's like it's very difficult to plan appropriately and have something be appropriate for an eight and a half UTR, but also be appropriate for a twelve UTR. And I yeah. don't I don't think there's a way to get around that in our current environment. Um, but yeah, that's why I'm sort of envious at times of like your environment with lower ratios and probably players that are um, in and around more of a similar level now that doesn't mean that because they're a similar level they're going to train the exact same things because it's obviously um it's obviously specific to their style of play as well and many other factors but it's um it's interesting yeah no i understand what you're saying and i guess some of the planning conversation segues into another question i have for you um we talked about creativity on the pod before and you sort of took a position that you think creativity in tennis is sometimes bullshit uh mm-hmm. which hey i respect um, when it comes to, I guess, planning, how important do you think it is for an athlete to have structured planning, but also times where their 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 training might be unstructured? Yeah, uh, that's a super interesting topic. I mean, so it's a big, not a huge talking point, but it's brought up a lot in Swedish tennis because. 
back in their heyday, um, you know, players just played at their, the, the, a lot of the successful players came from small towns and played at their local club. And they like, they, you know, their, their, their mom or dad got the keys to the place and they would go in early. And, and I guess that's structured training. If you're, if you're, if your mom or dad is, is coaching you or feeding you balls or whatever, but there was also unstructured training where they would just play with the local older members and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think unstructured training has a, plays a, an important role. I think the majority should probably be structured, but I think there's a lot of value in athletes being out there on their own, being alone with their thoughts, figuring things out, and also feeling that this is their journey, not that they're being pulled onto the hold on to the journey by someone else if that makes sense yeah yeah it makes sense for sure um sometimes i struggle sometimes with the concept of like why why it would be important to have unstructured training um but then i also i also realize i think part of my position is because the way things are in canada is the train the training generally has to be very very structured because it's usually linked closely with um, booking times and court times for us like a specific period of time it can certainly be less structured mm-hmm. in the summer when there's maybe more courts available and, and things like that but so my overall but thought the- is like how can how can an athlete get the hours they're supposed to get um and have a lot of those be unstructured um within canada at least but going back to your first point because I think it's just interesting to flesh this out a little bit, but do you see, or do you agree with me? Or do you think there are those sort of psychological or motivational benefits to unstructured training, like how it benefits the athlete to be on their own? Cause I haven't fully, like, I don't have a fully fleshed out theory for how that, how that benefits, but it just seems intuitively to me that it's good for them to, to be on their own and to not have that help and to, and to you know be in a practice match and have no one to talk to and to have to deal with their emotions or to be hitting with someone and to not have any guidance and have to try and figure things out on their own. Um, and then, like I said, motivationally to feel like I'm doing this for myself. Do you, yeah. do you see those as benefits as well? Or what do you, you think it's not as important or what do you think? No, I a hundred percent, I a hundred percent think they're important because the reality is, I mean, their, their matches are not going to be relatively structured. Like you said earlier in the planning thing, right. It's not like there's a structure of what they're going to do when they're down four, three in the, the third or whatever else. So I think, if the final skill is them being able to cope on their own and not need a coach, then, then yes, you're winning me over on the concept that mo- unstructured training or unstructured play is, is important. I guess you have more question, like how much of that, um, when is it important and how often is it important versus structured play? And I, I, we're not going to come up. It's not like we're going to reinvent the wheel and come up to an answer with this overall, but it's interesting. It's, it's made me think a lot about the way that we structure things at our club, at least. Mm -hmm. yeah and i guess i'm assuming we're on the same page with definitions here where like unstructured training is a practice or some sort of playing tennis where there isn't a coach and usually it's organized it's not organized by a coach either is that fair to say yep yep yeah i mean it could could be like a coach says hey like go hit with why don't you go hit with jimmy for an hour and do whatever you know um so yeah but then, yeah, so then your question was about how do Canadian juniors get that time? Well, yeah, I think the, the question is because 
court time is so scarce. The question becomes what what is more beneficial, structured play or unstructured play? And if if we believe that yes, unstructured straight play is important, do you in a roundabout way like add that into your planning for what the athlete's gonna do? But then like by definition, that becomes sort of somewhat structured, unstructured play. Oh man, we're going through we're going through it now, Zach. <laughs> Take me back to the decision making stuff. <laughs> no, so I don't know. It's just uh, I, I think about that a lot because mo- most of our athletes overall, I mean, they've got if they're training 16 hours a week, let's say it's uh, 16 hours a week are incredibly structured and they're doing this at this time and this at this time, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. But I don't know how to I don't I don't know how I'd get around that. I don't know how we'd get around them having time where it's not that unless, again, you plan that into your training. And you say, okay, for this this Thursday for two hours, um, players do your own thing, or players you tell us what you, what you want to do or something, um, to just to I guess to put the ownership more on them to be making the decisions of how the training goes. I mean, I think that, yeah, I think if we discuss which one's more beneficial, I think structured practice is more beneficial than unstructured practice. Like if you have to give up one, yeah, but well, I hope so, or else what are we doing? Exactly, but uh, I think it's an interesting question. I mean. If you talk about if you talk about court time, I guess my question would be like, what's the norm in Toronto for like what privileges do juniors get at the club they're at? In other words, yeah, in terms of their ability to in terms of their ability to book a court. Yeah, I mean, it, it obviously varies club to club. I mean, we have we don't put restrictions on our juniors. Um, okay, the our juniors have the same restrictions our adult membership has, so they're limited to. X amount of booking times per week because of just the sheer busyness of the club. Um, so that plays a role, you know. But then, apologies, I should be keeping up to date with all of the goings on of the Supreme Court, the greatest, greatest club in the land. But I, if your juniors wanted to book a court on the weekend, uh-huh. would they be able to, or is it like fully, fully booked, impossible to get a time? Or no, I mean, they. they- they can book at the same time adult members can book. So like they, they have the ability to be proactive and book courts to play on. And, and some of our juniors do take that, do do that, you know? Yeah. But then you don't have a court scarcity issue, right? Well, they're limited on how often they can do it and for how long. So it's not like they can sort of just do it whenever, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I don't think, I mean, if, if, if a good competitive junior, can get two hours a week of unstructured practice in where they book two hours on a weekend or one hour twice, twice during the week. And they play with a, and they play with a friend or they play with an older, an older member or something like that. And they do, you know, and they do some stuff on their own. I think that's, I think that's awesome. I don't think it needs to be like 10 hours of unstructured play, but I think to get like two hours in to get that experience of being like, I think that's good. Okay. It goes back to the original question of like what percentage is the right percentage of structured versus non-structured. Yeah, and I feel like, as usual, we're in similar boats where there doesn't have to be a ton of unstructured play. That's how we mm-hmm. we feel, at least. But I'd be I'd be curious if there's another if somebody else had a different position. I'll tell you. I'll tell you straight up that here 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 at at KLTK at the at the where I work at the Royal Lawn Tennis yeah, Club. Like... Exactly. Um, so I'm you know like I'm I'm involved in the academy, which is sort of separate from the the other the rest of the club program but the Mm -hmm. the club program has competitive kids and it has the whole runs the whole gamut and then the academy is sort of a little bit separate so i'm just saying that to say that i'm not involved in the total day-to-day so i can't give a ton of details but i know that what the club tells parents and players is that the the 
their the kids sort of development or whatever or their program you know should consist of uh structured training match play like competitive match play and then what they call like own training and they break it up as like 33 33 33 Interesting. one one third one third one third now i think part of that is because there is a there is a, a supply of courts issue um because courts have to be given to the members and because us as the academy we take a ton of courts so then there's less for the club program and so on and so forth but like that's that's how it's broken down there is one third one third one third um in terms of sort of like hours in a year i guess is the idea right um but uh you know that's just but i couldn't tell you exactly how many people stick to that or if that's the ideal ratio but that's that's one recommendation that's made here yep it's interesting as as we're talking through this as well it sort of leads me into my my next question for you which is i think would support the concept of unstructured play being important for athletes where sometimes as a coach i feel like my own beliefs and my own ideologies um i can instill in my athletes too much we're like obviously they're my beliefs and my ideologies because i think they're important i think they're going to help athletes win but like i think sometimes i might i might inhibit a player from developing a skill because i pigeonhole them into playing a certain way um and so i was curious your thoughts on that and i guess essentially like can a coach's ideology um put restraints on the players that he's working with to answer that question can you be a little more specific about how you would define in this case anyway what you mean by ideology sure well i guess i'll give you an i'll give you an example which i think will will clear it up i don't think there's any players that i work with who um would have the ability to play incredibly early on top of the baseline with like i guess like a variety of different techniques to to play super early in in every phase of play because it's not something that I currently believe in. Um, I think there's a time and a place for it. So uh, then I look like I look at some specifically female players on tour where like that's a predominant thing that happens, or at least to me, it appears to be happening on the WTA, WTA tour. And so like when I work with female athletes, it's like, well, am I doing them a disservice? Because I, I believe that that most tactics should involve number one, the ball going in the court and doing things that allow you to have good reception and good setups at all times. And like, yeah, so I'll, I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe there's two questions wrapped up into one there, but uh, there's no denying that uh, a coach's methodology or philosophy or ideology, whatever Augie you want to call it shapes the player's development. That's why coaches have them and that's why coaches exist. And that's why players go to coaches and that's why some coaches get results and others don't. And, and there's no denying that you can look at certain players and see the influence that coaches have had on them. Right. If you look at a a group of players that have spent extended time with a certain coach and you can not always, but you can oftentimes tell because you can look and say, okay, they have similar technique or they have similar playing styles or they have similar strengths and weaknesses and so on and so forth. So there's no doubt that that happens. I do think, though, I mean, I went through a similar reflection probably five, six years ago, maybe a little more, where I was, I started asking myself, like, do all my players play the same way? Do they have the same game style? And I started being a little more conscious of that, Um, you know, making sure that I wasn't pigeonholing anyone 
into a, a particular style of play that I thought you know worked best or that I was most comfortable with. Right. Um, and to a, to a lesser extent, the same thing is true of technique. I mean, I don't want all my players to look the same because if you look on tour, the players don't all look the same. There's, they share fundamentals, of course, but they don't all look the same. And so you have to be careful just because something worked for one player um, doesn't mean you have to do it with another player. It might work, but it might not be the best use of your time. So, I mean, I think like no doubt these things can, uh, you know, influence and shape the player. But I think the, the your responsibility is to make sure that your philosophy is responsive to the individual. Right. So if your philosophy is, or, or we, we can use the word ideology, I, I'm not going to use either one. I'm going to use the word methodology. But if, you're, if your methodology is tennis players should play fast and close to the baseline, then I would argue, like, yeah, that is going to influence your players. And that's probably irresponsible because not everyone should play like that. But if your methodology is, um, you know, if you are really fast and you have really good timing, and you can place the ball really well, then you should play close to the baseline. But if you like to take bigger swings and you hit a bit harder, but you don't move as well, then you can play, you should play a little further back. Then that that, that is also going to influence the development of your players, but in a more learner-centered way. Yeah. I think this is where, I think this is where I'm struggling a bit or where I have to be more mindful is that the, my, my messaging to majority of my athletes or the athletes that I, see is um probably too similar and like if i if i really want to continue to be learner centered or continue to be about about the athlete then i think i have to be a little bit better at tailoring tailoring my feedback more often and this and that's a really i I don't maybe i'm taking a soft topic here but i think that also relates to our planning conversation yeah because i think it's very easy i mean this is the (laughs) this is the my maybe my biggest pet peeve in coaching um, I had a word, I had a word for it, but I can't remember what it was, but it was, uh, I think it was trendy coaches. That's what it was. And it was coaches who like, they see a, they see a video on social media about like, you know, <laughs> I'm dating myself here. I was gonna say unit turn, but that's a, that's pretty much an outdated phrase now it feels like, but that was all the rage, you know, 10, 15 years ago, whatever it was, but they see a, a YouTube video about whatever. And then for the next two weeks, all, all you hear them talking about with their players is unit turn. Right. And it's no matter what the player is, it's, it's whatever. Or you see them doing some med ball exercise and then they're doing it with all of their players. And it's like, yeah. really? Is this the drill that every single player you have needs right now? Seems right. unlikely. But yeah. it's it's easy to fall into that trap, though, of like, this is what's on your mind. This is what you're thinking about. Uh, this is what this is what. And then you start to see those things. We know. I mean, that's psychologically as well. We know that we start to see the things that we're thinking about or looking for. And so if you're if if if. Uh, you know, if split step is on your mind and you're thinking about it a lot because you're working on it with one player, then you're, you probably start to look at it and then you start to see it in other players and you go, Oh yeah. And then you start to do it. So it's easy. And so that's why I'm tying it back into the planning thing is like, if you don't have a, a clear plan, then it's a little dangerous because you risk falling back onto your sort of gut or, or your, you risk falling into habit yeah. as opposed to saying, no, no, it's staying on track and saying, no, no, with this player, I'm working on this with this player, I'm working on this. And even if I see these other things, I'm going to make sure to stick with what I've really thought through as opposed to going with my first instinct. Yeah, 100%. And I think to piggyback on that point, it's I'm trying to be very mindful of like, 
coaching the thing that is going to be the most impactful and as opposed to coaching the thing that I am the most comfortable coaching. Love that. But, uh, and it's, it's, I've, it, it's a work in progress for sure. It's certainly a work in progress. But that's such a cool thing you just said, because I think that highlights a, like a really valuable quality of a, of a coach or a really, a really a sign of a really good coach. It's actually two, two parts. One is, one is this self-reflection, right? That you're reflecting on your coaching and your habits. And you're not just thinking about drop shots or forehand technique, but you're reflecting on your own coaching. And then the other thing is you're, uh, you're, you're encouraging yourself to step outside of what you're comfortable with. Because it, as you, as you just said, like, it's so easy as coaches to go like, well, I've taught this before I've done, I know a good progression for this. I know a good drill for this. I know this is going to work every time. Let me do this as opposed to going, well, no, what's the best, what is the most effective intervention I could do it there? I think that's what you just said there is really, really great. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Thanks. And thanks for working hard. And that's part of, part of one of the reasons I've, I've enjoyed being involved in some coach education stuff as well. Cause I feel it's like, it's really challenged me to be uh, more open and honest about my own coaching and stuff. And it's, um, to continue to put myself in in the role of like how a candidate would feel in a coaching course or whatever. Cause it's, it's important, I guess. Yeah. And that's like, that's what's so valuable about either, either doing, you know, coach education and, and, and training other coaches or educating other coaches or engaging in these sorts of discussions. I mean, it's obviously, it's obviously no lie that this podcast exists as a mechanism for you and I to talk coaching. Um, but like, getting together with friends over beers or, or having a chat or having little mini conferences or whatever, but like engaging in that process that forces you to self-reflect and question yourself and your practices is so much more valuable than just going at it on your own and watching, you know, watching a, a conference or a, or a YouTube video. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I got one more question for you, I think, and this I probably should have asked this this one to you after we did the structured play versus unstructured play. But um, come on, man, better structure to the podcast. Unbelievable. Overall, my thoughts a lot of the times are like athletes will do um, a lot of like programs and a lot of lessons and stuff up until a certain age. Um, I'm not sure if this is consistent worldwide or if this is just sort of a, a Canada versus North America or like a North American problem. But do you feel like there's a lot of athletes who get to a certain age where they stop doing programs and they stop participating in lessons and things while they're still competitive tennis players? Are you talking about uh, juniors or older? Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess I could be talking about older as well, but specifically my feeling is like what will happen a lot in Canada is a player will get to sort of 15, 16 years old and all of a sudden, they, uh, they're they no longer involved in um, a club's programming. They no longer actively participate in, I guess, like player development-related things. And they sort of go at it on their own with with buddies, um, which I guess would would be unstructured. But I, I, wonder, I wonder if you feel like that's the same case where you are. Um, and I guess the, the rationale for why that happens. Yeah, I think on... My end of things, I mean, I'm not 100% in that. Well, once again, I feel like I sound like I sit in an ivory tower, but I'm not 100% in that scene because I am once again working with 
you know, players who are playing ITF juniors or futures. And so it's a pretty committed group, but I'm not totally in the Swedish tennis scene um, because my players don't play national tournaments. They're playing internationally for the most part. Yeah. But um, I think it does happen from, from what little I've been able to see. I think it does happen. I'd be surprised if it didn't, to be honest. It seems like a, a phenomenon that should occur um, in the majority of countries, but I don't know why I say that. That's just my gut instinct. I mean, I think I'm, but it sounds like you have a more direct experience of this. So I, I, I would flip the question back on you as to like, why does it occur? My answer, my response in regards to whether it's good or not, I think depends on that. Why? Because I think if it's, if it's because, you know what, I've reached a point where I enjoy competing, but I don't have high aspirations. I don't, I'm not, I don't have my sights set on uh, playing pro or getting a college scholarship, or maybe I've already, you know, I've already got my scholarship and I'm kind of happy with that. And I know that I can cruise until the end. And then I go like, if that's the, if that's the idea, then I think fair play. I think that's, I think it's, it's really self-aware and really, really mature in a sense. If it's some sort of disillusionment with the system and some sort of belief that, you know, uh, no one can take care of us or I don't trust anyone or, or we know better, we can do it on our own. I don't begrudge anyone for wanting to do things on their own, but I think oftentimes those setups um, are not super productive, um, whether it's for the club or for the athlete or for the the, the parent, if there's a parent involved. Um, that's my yeah. that's my initial thought. But like I said, I don't know in your experience what this looks like and 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 why it's happening. Yeah, I guess in mine, I don't as well. I guess I'd have to specifically ask ask athletes why that is the case but um yeah i sometimes just get the vibe that, that athletes at a certain age are like you know what I've, I've done programs a lot like i don't need I've, i'm kind of well-rounded skill wise and i think i can keep developing these things myself but then what uh, do they wh- what do they do so like do they maintain the the same training volume like a full a full program but they just do it on their own with no coaches or do they just like hop from club to club and access different different programs but not any anyone full-time or what exactly does that look like yeah more the first thing i think their hours go down a little bit but overall they're just they're booking and playing um wherever they can find space you know and it's like they're not in uh, uh, involved or associated with the program anymore sort of like just doing their own thing but um and i think that sometimes there's financial reasons for that as well but it's like i don't know just overall i think there's a lot of a lot of kids who end up not reaching their potential because they get to a point where they just realize that, Oh, I don't need training or coaching anymore. And I think our role as a coach exists to not be needed by a player in some sense, but maybe that's too direct of a sense. Yeah. It might be too direct of a sense, but it goes back to my first point. Like what's the point of a coach? You know, the point of a coach is to take you to point A from point A to point B, right. Is to help you reach a goal. If you've already reached that goal, you know, if like, as I said, if the goal is get a college scholarship and you've already signed and you're just sitting there going, okay, I'm going to drop my hours by 15% and I can maintain my level until the fall season starts and I, and I move to the U S then, then yeah, in a sense, why do you need a coach? Of course, like there's social benefits and things like that, but I can totally understand that. Um, but it, going back to our discussion of structured versus unstructured, I would suggest that if you want to 
maximize your development, then coaching is the way to go. But no judgment if you've had a well thought out, you know, if you've thought it out thoroughly and decided that, yeah, it's not the sort of thing that I need right now. Uh, fair play to you. Yeah. I'd have, I guess I'd, I would have to ask the athletes in which I see this occurring to be like, what what's the rationale behind this? Because um, I think sometimes we maybe give too much credit to the fact that like, oh, like they got it, you know, and I, it's like, I feel like sometimes it's, it's misguided, you know, but then it's also like, yeah, when you own and run an academy, if and you were to say this to an athlete or to a player, then it certainly sounds like a cash grab as well. It's like, well, you should keep doing this. And it's like, well, no, that's not, that's not how I mean it, you know, but um, yeah, of course. But do you follow, like, have you been able to follow these athletes and see like, what do they do after a couple of years? Do they quit tennis? Do they go on to a scholarship? Do they just keep competing for fun? Do they, are they, what kind of relationship do they have with the sport? Like, are you able to profile them a little bit? I mean, that sounds yeah, bad, I mean but... it'd all be anecdotal, but yeah, it's like, I think they, they still stay involved, but then their level certainly doesn't get better. They sort of, they maintain a little bit and they, they miss windows on certain stuff. And then just the overall guidance of like where their game could or should be is, is not reached, but it's all, all also makes an assumption that that is what the, that athlete still wants. They still want to improve. They still want, but if, if that's not the case, then like, as you said earlier, power to you you know, dear thing. Yeah, exactly. It is very dependent, but I do see, I do see situations where people feel like, ah, you know, these coaches don't know what they're, or these, yeah, there's no coaches here who can help me. So I'm going to do it on my own. And I think that would be an interesting discussion one day to sit there and go like, why does that happen? And, Mm -hmm. and what, what, while acting ethically and responsibly, like you said, because we don't want to be sitting there just for our own self-interest, but if it is really for the benefit of the child, you know, what can we do as coaches and as academies, clubs, programs to build trust and and highlight the value that a coach can bring or a program can bring and minimize that experience? I think that would be an interesting discussion because it's uh, it's a tough nut to crack. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, we can we can table it there. We can add that one to the like, at one point, too. We should go through all these podcasts and and talk about all of the things we said, hey. That would be an interesting topic for another pod because I feel like we've got tons of content there of stuff that we could, you know. Yeah. And I can guarantee that at least two or three times, one of us has said like, I'll think about it and I'll get back to you on the next show. And that's happened zero times. Sorry. Right. Right. right, right. No. Yeah. I'm no sure answers. Go through. No answers. No follow-ups. Uh-uh. No, no outro. It's yep. the gray zone. Thanks for tuning in. You crushed it. You as well, Zach. That was the gray zone. Goodbye.